be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 26 to 30 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 26 Aristomenes and the Fox The Spartans were eager to fight and to add to their dominions, so they determined to attack the Messenians, whose country lay west of Laconia, close to their own borders. One day, while the Messenians were feasting and offering sacrifices to their gods, the Spartans sent three youths disguised as maidens across the borderland. Beneath their robes, the young soldiers carried arms. They stole quietly in amongst the Messenians and attacked them in the midst of their feast. But although the Messenians were unarmed, they soon captured the three Spartan lads. They then advanced against the Spartans, and in the tumult that followed, one of the kings of Sparta was slain. The war, which was thus begun in 743 BC, lasted for many years and was known as the First Mycenaean War. No great battle was fought until four years had passed. Even then, neither side could claim victory, but so many Mycenaeans had fallen that Aristodemus, their chief, withdrew with those of his followers who were left, to a mountain fortress called Ithome. Then, as was their custom, when it was difficult to know what to do next, the Messenians sent to consult the oracle. The answer filled them with dismay, for the oracle declared, that not until a maiden belonging to one of their ancient houses was sacrificed to the gods need they hope to conquer the Spartans. But Aristodemus loved his country so dearly that he did not hesitate to sacrifice his own daughter to the gods. When the Spartans heard what the brave chief had done, they hastened to make peace with the Mycenaeans. They could not hope to conquer those for whom the gods would now fight. A few years passed, and then the Spartans determined to attack the Mycenaeans once again and to drive them from Metome, their mountain fortress. Again a great battle was fought, and again neither side could claim the victory. But the king of the Mycenaeans was killed, and Aristodemus was chosen to rule in his place. 
in the fifth year of his reign, he defeated the Spartans and drove them from his dominions. The victory brought no happiness to the king, for omens of evil seemed to pursue him. In the temple, a brazen shield fell from the hand of the statue of Artemis, the goddess. The daughter of Aristodemus appeared to her father and bade him lay aside his armour. He obeyed, and she then placed on his head a crown of gold and clad him in a white robe. These things meant that the death of the king was near. Aristodemus believed that not only he, but his country was doomed, and deeming that he had sacrificed his daughter in vain, he slew himself in his despair on her tomb. For twenty years the war still dragged on, and only then were the Spartans able to drive the Messenians from Ithome and raise the fortress to the ground. Many of the conquered people fled, while those who remained were treated more harshly than were the helots for they were compelled to pay as tribute to the Spartans half the produce of their land. This was the end of the First Mycenaean War. For almost thirty years the conquered people bore their cruel lot. Then, in 685 BC, they rebelled and the Second Mycenaean War began. Aristomenes, the leader of the rebels, was a bold and daring foe. To show how little he feared the Spartans, he secretly crossed the borderland into the enemy's country, and one night he succeeded in entering the city of Sparta itself. He made his way to the temple of Athene, and walking in boldly, he hung up his shield beside the statue of the goddess, with these words tied to it. Dedicated by Aristomenes to the goddess from the Spartan spoils. With a band of his bravest fellows, the chief made more than one successful raid into the heart of the enemy's country and plundered two of their cities. As in the first war, so in this second war, no decisive victory was gained at first by either side, but legend tells that Aristomenes did many valiant deeds. Three times he offered a strange sacrifice to the king of the gods, which one who had slain in battle a hundred of the foes was alone permitted to do. The sacrifice was named the Hecatomphonia. The Spartans, alarmed at the daring of Aristomenes, sent to consult the oracle at Delphi. They were told to send to the famous city of Athens for a leader. Now the Spartans did not wished to do this, for they were not on good terms with the Athenians. Still, as they dared not disregard the oracle, 
they did as they were bid. The Athenians did not wish to help the Spartans any more than they wished to ask for help. Yet they too knew they could not ignore the oracle. So they got out of the difficulty, as they thought, by sending a lame schoolmaster named Tyrtaeus. He would not be likely to lead an army far. But although Tyrtaeus was a lame man, he was also a poet. His war songs roused the Spartans and inspired them to fight more bravely than ever. When they marched again to battle, they were singing the songs of Tyrtaeus and marching to victory. Aristomenus was forced to retreat to the mountains to a fortress called Era. For eleven years the war lingered on. The Spartans often encamped at the foot of Era to keep the enemy in check. But again and again, Aristomenes broke out of the fortress and with a band of followers crossed the border and laid waste to Laconia. Twice he was taken prisoner and twice he escaped. But the third time he was captured and he was carried in triumph to the city of Sparta. With fifty of his countrymen, he was flung from Mount Togetus into a great chasm in the rock below. The fifty followers of Aristomenes were killed by the fall, but Aristomenes was saved by the gods, for So the legend tells, an eagle with wings outspread carried him unhurt to the bottom of the pit. For three days Aristomenes lay in the cavern, surrounded by the dead bodies of his comrades. To escape seemed impossible, but when no hope was left in the heart of the brave man. He noticed something move at the foot of the cave. At once he roused himself to look more closely at the moving object. It was a fox prowling about in search of food. In an instant hope was alive in the heart of Aristomenes. If an animal had got into the cave, it was possible for him to get out of it. Weak though he was for want of food, Aristomenes managed to seize the tail of the fox and to hold it fast when the animal tried to escape. Onward the fox struggled until it reached a narrow hole in the rock. Then Aristomenes let his delivery go, while he began at once to enlarge the hole. The next day, to the joy of his countrymen and to the alarm of his enemies, Aristomenes was again in the Mycenaean fortress. But there was a traitor in the camp of the Mycenaeans, and one night, soon after the return of their leader, the mountain fortress at Era was betrayed into the hands of the Spartans. In the battle that followed, Aristomenes was wounded 
but gathering together the bravest of his followers, he made a desperate charge through the lines of the enemy and escaped. Some time after, he died in Rome, but it is told that two hundred and fifty years later, he was seen on the battlefield fighting against the Spartans. The Second Mycenaean War ended, as had the First, in the triumph of the Spartans, who again treated their prisoners as slaves. In 464 BC, war again broke out between the Mycenaeans and Sparta. The Spartans were victorious, and the conquered people were driven from Peloponnesus. But in 369 BC, a great Theban leader called Epaminondas restored freedom to the Mycenaeans and brought them back again to their own country. The history of the Mycenaean War was written by the poet Tyrtaeus, whose songs were sung for many years by the Spartans as they marched to battle. Some of these songs we can still read for ourselves. Chapter 27 The Olympian Games Greece was made up of many separate states, each independent of the other, but there were several bonds which united the states. They spoke the same language. They worshipped the same gods. They kept the same great festivals. The festivals, held by a council called the Amphictyonic Council, were honoured by all the states. The council was made up of men chosen from twelve of the most ancient Greek tribes and met twice each year. The temple of Apollo at Delphi was under the care of the Amphictyonic Council, and it was at Delphi that the Springtide Festival was held. Another great festival of the Amphictyonic Council was celebrated in the temple dedicated to the Demeter at Thermopylae. The Amphictyons, as the members of the council were called, did not govern Greece as a parliament governs a country, but they often talked of what could be done for the good of the states, and of how their interests could be united more closely of more power to weld the states together than the council, were the national games, where members of all the different countries of Greece met together. The chief of these games was the Olympian Games, which were believed to have begun far back in the shadowy past and to have been revived by Lycurgus, the lawgiver, in 776 BC. Olympia, where the games were held, was in the country of Elis, in Peloponnesus. The king of Elis helped Lycurgus to renew the interest of the Greek in the ancient games. It is said that when Apollo first saw the beautiful valley of Olympia, he exclaimed, Here will I make me a fair temple to be an oracle for men. The ancient stadium 
or race course, was erected in the valley, as well as a temple to Zeus, in which the victors of the games were given wreaths of wild olive. These wreaths were valued more than any other prize or distinction in Greece. Indeed, at Olympia, no other reward was given save the simple wild olive branches, which were plucked from the sacred grove in the Olympian plain and twined into a wreath. But when the victor returned to his own country, he was loaded with gifts and honours, for he had gained for his state and for his relations a glory which all longed to possess. In the Olympian temple, in later days, there was a marvellous statue of Zeus in gold and ivory, wrought by the genius of Phidias, the greatest sculptor of Greece. The games were open to all, and spectators as well as competitors flocked to Olympia from every state in Greece. To the Greeks, these games were part of their religion. They were rights-pleasing, so they believed, to the gods. Should there be war between any of the Greek states at the time of the games, all hostile acts were forbidden in Olympia. Until the festival was over, those who had been in arms, one against another, might meet in safety and in peace. Twice or thrice an armed force made its way into the sacred territory of Elise to interfere with the games. This to the Greeks was sacrilege. In the earliest times, the games lasted only for one day, and a simple foot race was the only event. But soon the festival came to last for five days, for there were now not only foot races, but wrestling, boxing, racing in armour, and above all else, chariot races. In these races, it was not the driver who, if successful, won the wreath of olive, but the owner of the chariot. On the first day of the games, Sacrifices were offered to the gods. On the following three days, the races were held, while on the last day, the people marched in procession to the temple and again offered sacrifices and feasted. At the end of every four years, the games were celebrated the time between the games being called an Olympiad. The year 776 BC was counted as the first Olympiad. The second began in 772 BC. In ancient times, the Greeks reckoned their dates by the Olympiads. Thus an event was said to take place in a certain year of a certain Olympiad. Games were held at many other places as well as at Olympia, but the three most important celebrations after the Olympian were the Isthmian, the Pythian and the Nemean. To these festivals came the poets of Greece, prepared to celebrate in song 
the skill of the victors. During the intervals between the games, great numbers of the people assembled in a hall to listen to the poets while they recited their poems. As the years passed, the great Greek dramas or plays came to be acted also at these festivals. At first the stage was a simple wooden platform in the open air, but soon wooden buildings were erected. Plays were performed at Athens in a splendid theatre, which was hewn out of solid rock of the Acropolis or citadel of the city. Tier after tier was cut until the theatre could hold thirty thousand spectators. Chapter 28 The Last King of Athens You remember how Sesrops came to Attica and built a city so beautiful that the gods marvelled, and how Athene made the first olive tree and was therefore awarded the honour of naming the city and becoming its patron. The olive tree was now said to grow on a rock in the stronghold or acropolis of the city. In ancient days, Sparta was a more important city than the beautiful one built by Sesrops, but little by little, as the years passed, Athens became supreme in Greece and the most glorious city of the world. At first, Athens, like Sparta and the other states, was governed by kings. But while Sparta continued to be a monarchy, Athens became an oligarchy. That is, she was governed by a few, and these few were nobles. When Codrus, the last king of Athens, was on the throne, the state was invaded by the Dorians. An oracle had declared that unless the Athenian king was slain in the camp of the enemy, Athens would be taken. Codrus loved his city and determined to save it from the enemy. So he disguised himself as a peasant and went to the camp of the Dorians where he killed the first soldier he met. The comrades of the dead man at once fell upon Codrus, and, as he had hoped, he was speedily slain. Then, as the oracle had foretold, Athens was saved from the enemy. The Athenians resolved that they would no longer have kings to rule over them, because they were sure that they could never find any worthy to follow Codrus, who had died for the sake of his country. This seems a strange reason for which to overturn the monarchy. In most countries, it is the bad conduct of their kings which makes the people wish to get rid of them. As Athens would not have another king, the son of Codrus was given neither the power nor the title of royalty. He was named merely Archon or ruler. An Archon ruled only for ten years. Soon the Athenians determined to choose nine archons each year, 
for they thought it would be well to divide the power among these men, rather than entrust it to one ruler. The Archons were obliged to consult a council of nobles before they made a new law, while the council had to lay their plans before the assembly of the people. In this way, Athens became before long an oligarchy governed by a few nobles. The nobles often proved harsh rulers, taking from the people the rights that had been theirs when Athens was a monarchy. At length the people grew so angry that they determined to destroy the nobles who treated them so cruelly. But as they were helpless without a leader, they were glad to follow an ambitious noble who would place himself at their head and lead them to fight against their oppressors. Too often the deliverer seized the supreme power himself and oppressed the people more than had the oligarch. The usurper was called by the Greeks a tyrant, but the word tyrant did not mean to them, as it means to us, a cruel man. It meant simply one who had seized a power to which he had no real right. Some of the tyrants were cruel, but others used the power which they had seized for the good of the state. The years 700 BC to 500 BC are known as the Age of the Tyrants because there were few states, save Sparta, which did not fall under the power of a tyrant during those years. Often the people learned to hate a tyrant as greatly as they had hated the nobles under whose harsh treatment they had groaned. But it was not easy to get rid of him for he usually had hired soldiers to help to keep the citizens from rebelling. One of the wisest and best of the tyrants was named Pisistratus, and he was a cousin of Solon, the great lawgiver of Athens. Solon was not a tyrant, although he had wished he might have become one. Chapter 29 Cylon Fails to Make Himself a Tyrant The people of Attica were divided into three classes. There were the men of the plain, who owned land and were wealthy. The men of the shore, who were fisherfolk and traders. The men of the hill, or uplanders, who were shepherds and herdsmen. These three parties, the plain, the shore, the hill, as they were often called, were dissatisfied with the way in which they were treated by the nobles. For, little by little, they were taking possession of the land and making free men slaves. When the harvest failed, or when trade was bad, the poor were forced to borrow from the rich, and if a poor man could not pay his debt when it came due, his land and his goods were seized by the rich man. Nor was that the worst, for if the land and the goods were not enough to cover the debt, then the poor man himself 
was taken to be used or sold as a slave. So great was the discontent of the people that in 632 BC, a noble named Cylon determined to put himself at their head, overthrow those who were in power, and make himself a tyrant. But Cylon did not trouble to gain the goodwill of the people. He succeeded in seizing the Acropolis, but it was by the aid of soldiers whom he had hired from the neighbouring city of Megara, not by the help of the people of Athens. The Athenians were indignant when they saw Megarian soldiers in their capital, and they looked on coldly and struck no blow for Cylon when the Archons besieged the rebel noble in the citadel. Cylon did not stay to see his plans destroyed. He escaped from the city by night, but his followers held the Acropolis until famine stared them in the face. Then they gathered for sanctuary around the altar of Athene and threw open the gates of the citadel. Megasols, the chief archon, promised that the lives of the defenders should be spared, but no sooner than they had left the altar than he ordered that they should be put to death. The Athenians punished Megasols for this treacherous deed, for he and his family, to which he belonged, were banished from Athens, while their property was seized by the state. It is told that the city lay under a curse after the treacherous deed of Megasols, nor was she freed from it until a priest purified her with solemn religious rites. Cylon had neither gained his own ends, nor had he helped the people by his rebellion. Poverty and debt were hard to bear, yet these citizens might now have suffered in silence, but injustice drove them to demand that the laws should be reformed, for the archons punished as they pleased those who disobeyed the law, and at the courts sentence was often passed in favour of those who had bribed or befriended the judge. When the people rose in 621 BC, demanding that justice should be done in the land. The task of reforming the laws was entrusted to one of the archons named Draco. Until now, the laws had not been written, and so many of them were unknown to the people. Draco ordered that the laws should be inscribed on tablets that they might be read by the people. Sometimes he was blamed for the severity of these laws, although all he had done was to make them known. But the code of laws which Draco drew up was so severe that in later days, as the Athenians read them, they exclaimed in horror, the laws of Draco seem to have been written in blood rather than with ink. And indeed, there was cause for dismay when the theft of a cabbage was punished with death. Draco was thus of little real help to the poor people of Athens.
Chapter 30 Solon Frees the Slaves Solon, the wise law-giver of Athens, was a descendant of King Codrus. His father had given away most of his wealth to help his city or his countrymen, so Solon became a merchant as the son of noblemen often did in these days of long ago. To increase his business, Solon journeyed through many of the states of Greece, as well as to Asia. Wherever he went, he studied the laws and manners of the people, just as Lycurgus, the lawgiver of Sparta, had done. Solon was not only a merchant, he was also a poet, and because he was both wise and learned, he was counted one of the seven sages of Greece. When Solon returned from one of his journeys about 593 BC, he was made an archon and asked to reform the laws. His first act was a great and unexpected one, for he proclaimed that henceforth no one might be made a slave because he was unable to pay his debts. And more than that, he said that those who were already slaves were at once to be set free. Hundreds of men were thus delivered from slavery. Many hundreds more were freed from the fear of becoming slaves. As these men ploughed their own lands and reaped their own harvests, they were full of gratitude to Solon. For this law alone, the name of Solon might well be held in reverence. So great was the joy of the people that the day the law was passed was kept each year as a festival. But the rich nobles were not pleased with Solon's act, for they lost many of their slaves and found it less easy to add to their wealth. The lawgiver also declared that if there was war or strife in the state, each citizen must take one side or the other. No one was to be allowed to look on idly, or side now with one party, now with another. Solon restored to the assembly of the people the rights that had been wrested from it and he did all he could to add to its powers. In these ways, Solon made Greece less and less of an oligarchy, and more of a democracy. This is to say, Greece began to be governed by the many, rather than by the few. The laws made by Solon and there were many of which I have not told you, were written on tablets of wood and placed in frames that revolved. These frames were called axons and were numbered. When the law had been written on the tablets of wood, they were placed in the public hall that they might be read by all. Other copies were made on stone pillars and kept in the portico of the king. Each citizen took an oath that he would keep these laws, which were to remain unaltered for hundreds of years. Solon had enemies, as reformers in all ages have had. Some people complained 
because his laws were not bold enough, others because they were too bold. Once when he was asked if he believed that he had given to the Athenians the best possible laws, he answered, the best they could receive. The complaints of his enemies did not greatly disturb him. He declared that neither friend nor foe influenced him as he worked. I threw my stout shield over both parties, he said, and steadfastly refused to alter his code. When he ceased to be an archon, he left Athens and spent ten years seeing many strange people and many new places. It is said that during his absence, he met Croesus, king of Lydda, the richest man in the world. As Solon and Croesus did not live at the same time, it is not possible that the wise lawgiver and the rich king could have met, but this is the story that is told. When Solon reached Lydda, he went to the court of Croesus. The nobles were clad in such rich garments and were attended by so many guards and pages that the Athenian thought that one of them must be the king himself. But when he actually stood in the presence of the monarch, he must have smiled at his mistake. So gorgeously was the king arrayed in gold and purple. So plentifully was he beckoned by the sparkling jewels. Croesus thought that Solon would be filled with awe at the sight of his grandeur, but he soon found that purple cloth and rare stones had no great interest for the Athenian. There were still his treasure houses. These could not fail to impress the stranger. So the king led Solon through gallery after gallery that he might see his pictures, his statues, and all the wonderful things that his wealth had brought him. Then in a glow of pride he turned to his guest, asking if he did not think that Croesus was the happiest man in the world. Nay, O king, answered Solon. Tell us, one of my own countrymen was happier than thou, for he died bravely on the battlefield in defence of his country. Croesus thought Solon was foolish not to count that man happiest who owned the most gold, but he only said, after Tellus, dost thou count me the happiest man in the world? Nay, again answered the wise man, but two sons who loved their mother well and served her with their strength. The king was angry, and he said, Dost thou not count me a happy man? Call no man happy until he dies, replied the wise man, for who knows what pains the gods may yet have in store for him while he lives. Croesus was yet to learn the truth of what Solon said, for in days to come, Cyrus, king of Persia, seized his city took him prisoner and condemned him to be burned to death. As he was being bound to the pyre, 
Croesus remembered the words of the Athenian, and he cried aloud three times, O Solon, Solon, Solon. The king of Persia had never heard of Solon, and he asked on what strange god his prisoner was calling. On no god, answered the miserable man, but on one whom I would that all tyrants might meet and converse with. He then told Cyrus how Solon had said no one need count himself happy while he lived, as he could not know what misfortunes the gods had yet in store for him. Already the pyre had been set to light, but Cyrus, struck by the words he had heard, and thinking that he did not know what fate might befall himself, ordered Croesus to be set free. But the flames had ablazed up fiercely, and no one could quench the fire. Then Croesus besought Apollo to help him, and lo, the sky which had been clear grew dark, and a heavy downfall of rain soon extinguished the flames. Thus, said Plutarch, who tells this story, Solon had the glory by the same saying to save one king and instruct another.